You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt, and uh, I will be sharing God's word with us this morning. The gentleman that's uh, about to come on the screen is a man by the name of William Cooper, and uh, he was born in England in the 1700s. And he wrote some of the most famous hymns that, uh, if you've been in church for a while, you might remember or know. He wrote, For a closer walk with God, there's a fountain filled with blood. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. Uh, He was a contemporary of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, They were actually friends, and John Newton was his mentor. When you see this gentleman here, you probably either think of an older-looking beetle or... um, a stately man who was in a monastery somewhere with candlelight, writing hymns, communing with God, walking among the English countryside. The reality is, though, that Mr. Cooper spent the majority of his life in an insane asylum. Most of his life was spent with haunting questions, haunting dreams, depression, um, several attempts on his life and this recurring nightmare that he would have that he was sure he was eternally damned. He wrote to John Newton one time and he said that I seem to be scrambling in the dark among the rocks, the precipices, and without a guide. Sources say that William Cooper sank deep into a depression in 1796 and then he died in 1800, never recovering. So happy Sunday morning. I'm aware that it's a kind of a dark way to start a sermon, but I think that the psalm that was just read so beautifully by the worship team asks us to consider a couple things when it comes to the character of God and the reality of suffering. Thanks, Jenny, for kind of starting by uh, sharing your own journey with that and uh, honor your story in that. In this psalm, there's um, several different realities that are going on. First of all, we have the psalmist uh, talking about the character of God or the reality of who God is. We've been looking at a couple different psalms here at Citizens, and we've identified that psalms are divided into genres or there's different types of psalms. This one, surprise, is a lament. And uh, it's a plea to God for help, for his faithfulness, his kindness, and for uh, his covenant faithfulness to hold somebody while they wait for him. It's corporate, meaning that it could be prayed all of us together as God's people, but it's also individual with the personal pronouns in here of I, of somebody in desperation pleading with God to rescue them. It says, I'm lonely and afflicted, or I take refuge in you. I wait for you. This psalm is a Hebrew acrostic, which Darcy a while back kind of walked through how it works, so I'm grateful for him for doing that, so I don't have to. Um, you can just go back in your files and listen to that again. Um, so you'll, you'll see that this, reading it in English, feels a little disconnected, meaning that if you were just reading the psalm looking for an overall theme, at least I felt like this the first time I read it, after Darcy said this is the theme, or the psalm, I was like, oh my goodness, this one's all over the place. Um, and one of the commentators actually said it may be the toughest psalm in the psalms to preach out. So that's fantastic. Um, but what's happening here is acrostic, or he's walking through the different things that are on his heart and mind about the character of God, but also the reality of his emotional makeup and what's going on for him in his life and around him. So 
so that we don't feel like we're getting whiplash or have a bad case of ADD, we'll try to focus on the overarching theme that, that's happening here. What I want to ask today is the question of what does it mean to be mindful of the mercy, the covenant friendship of God, juxtaposed against a backdrop of sin, loneliness, and the affliction that's in our souls and in our hearts. The first verses of this psalm talk about how the writers, you could maybe visualize looking up to the sky, and he's asking the Lord, I'm waiting on you. He's, I don't know if he's in a high place that was a place of worship in the uh, ancient times, but in a space where he's looking to the mountains, to the sky, and asking the Lord to be there as he waits for him. I'm going to do some, I'm going to really quickly go through a few of the verses. If uh, you have your Bible open, you can look at them. What I want to do is just see the ways in which the psalmist talks about the character of God. He describes God in terms of both his character, who he is, and then what flows out of that character, what God is like because of that character. So in verse 4, he describes him as a teacher. In verse 5, there's the call to God's leadership or a leader. And jump down to verse 7, it says he's described, God is described as someone who remembers us with steadfast love. So like a holding love, a covenantal love. Verse 8 describes God as good. And we sang about that this morning in our worship music. It says, remember me for the sake of your goodness. And verse 10 describes the Lord's paths as places of steadfast peace and protection or love. Verse 11 describes him as somebody who's going to pardon guilt. 12 and 13 indicate that God, indicate that those who fear God will abide in well-being and their offspring will inherit the earth. Kind of a throwback to, or not a throwback, a preview to the Beatitudes. 15, 14 and 15 make the case for a covenantal friendship of God as a source of healing and comfort. So what we have here is a theological expose of what God is like, his character, and how this psalmist sees the character and the nature of God. Again, in the psalm study, we've talked about God. We've talked about his nature. We've talked about who he is, what he's like, um, the kinds of things that come and flow out of the character of the God that we worship. Verse 15 seems like a nice place to stop the psalm. It says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I feel like that's a verse you could put on your fridge or tattoo on your arm. It's a good, solid verse. Eyes are on God. He's going to pluck my feet out of the net. But it doesn't stop there. We get to go to verse 16, where we have a 180 happening. Verse 16, the psalmist says, turn to me and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. The uh, message paraphrase says it this way, just pretty simply. It says, look at me and help me. I'm all alone and I'm in big trouble. I'm lonely and afflicted, all alone and in big trouble. There might be a temptation to refer the psalmist to his previous verse uh, and uh, ask him, hey, what happened in between 15 and 16? You were pretty sure God was going to pluck you from the net. Now you're all alone and in big trouble. So how does verse 16 line up with the character of God? How does it line up with the reality of a good God in a world of suffering, a God of covenant faithfulness, a God who never leaves, a God who is good, the God that we sing about? And maybe some of you, maybe all of you, would find more of a connection with verse 16 than you would with verse 15. That 16 seems a little closer 
to home. The previous verses are full of confidence in the character of God. And like I just walked us through, if it's true that God is truly all of these things, where does loneliness and emotional turmoil come from? Imagine that here at Citizens Church, there exists real loneliness, anxiety at different capacities, fear, financial fear, fear of the future. Maybe there's like childhood stuff locked deep down in a closet somewhere that you absolutely don't want to let out. Or maybe you're here this morning and your faith seems to be slipping away from you. Something that was once very real and vibrant for you has become dim and feels confusing and you're not really sure of any of it anymore. And you've felt yourself moving away from the covenant reality that you once believed in. God might feel like he's a million miles away. So for all of you here, like it's been mentioned many times in this sermon, if you haven't felt, or in this series, if you haven't felt suffering, you will. Maybe based on your age or based on your realities. So what happens when there's no happy ending in the world? What happens when you pray a thousand prayers and nothing changes? What happens when you see 10 different doctors and do seven different medications and the depression never lifts? What if the prodigal son or daughter never comes home? What if your finances never get to the place that Dave Ramsey or Welker.ca would be proud of? What if you're William Cooper and you meet Jesus and your soul is absolutely crushed? K.J. Ramsey said the following. She said, our society loves tales of rising heroes. We've so fused our American dream with the risen Christ that when suffering enters our lives and does not leave quickly, all we know how to do is hide, judge, or despair. We've reduced the gospel to rescue, power to privilege, hope to swift healing, reducing ourselves in the process. Western Christendom has long treated suffering like a problem to fix and a blight to hide. Eugene Peterson was right. It is difficult to find anyone in our culture who will respect us when we suffer. When our storylines do not match the arc of triumph we've come to expect and revere, we can feel stuck on the outside of both our communities and God's grace. I think she's pretty bang on there. Uh, she said American dream. Uh, we're Canadians. We have something similar to the American dream. It's just not quite as in your face, but it's there. Um, this reality of hustle culture, this thing of uh, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and often that your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or peace, order, and good government, either one, is a self-fulfilling reality that if you work hard enough, if you do the right things, life's going to go the right way. And sometimes that seeps into our Christianity too, right? Like if you pray the right prayers, if you go to enough Bible studies, and if you spend enough time with the right people, then life will work out for you. But sometimes that reality of how life's supposed to work out can come to a crashing halt, and God can feel like he's harder and harder to see through the pain. I feel like we make a lot of audacious claims when we sing worship songs, right? Like, Christ is enough for me, everything I need is in you, or Spirit lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the water wherever you would call me. I used to sing that with vigor when I was 18. <laughs> then I started walking on some water, and I was like, I'd like to retract that part. <laughs> it's, uh, 
based in some beautiful sediments and rooted in the truth of Christ. Those aren't lies, but they can be lies to our reality or they're not connected to what we're going through. And when life gets really hard, these words feel shallow if you're grasping for some rest. So let's take this psalm into today. How are we supposed to read this psalm in light of 2022, the life that we find ourselves in? How do we read the, de- the declarations of the character of God, who he is, what he's about, and how do we wait on the Lord when verse 16 happens and the, the following verses that foes are great surrounding us and we're wanting a rescue? We're going to jump ahead about a thousand years. And if you have a Bible, you can turn here. Let's go to Luke 24. It's about a thousand years later. There's two guys walking down the road to Emmaus. And the New Living Translation says that sadness was written across their faces or affliction or emotional pain, loneliness, help me, I'm in big trouble. So I'm just going to read it. It's quite a few verses and it's really hot. We'll do the best we can. Luke 24, 18 to 33. And that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things that had just happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleophas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before the Lord, before God, sorry, and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, now it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they, came, when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going to go on further, but they charged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the night is now far spent. So he went in with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I have to confess that Luke 24 might be one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, It starts in the place that so many of us as humans start, a little confused, some anxiety maybe, a little bit of sadness on the face. And you can imagine what it was like for these guys if they had been actively following Jesus for three years and then suddenly it just all ends. The guy died. You watched a movement of healing. The poor being lifted up, 
oppressed coming out. It felt like something was happening. The kingdom of God had come. And then just like that, Jesus dies on a Roman death machine. But in the moment where they meet Jesus, they don't recognize it right away. Their human experience of the loss of hope is really real for them. You know, back in the verse 21 where they say, you know, the religious guys, they told us he's just a man, but man, we hoped he was the one. We had some hope in this guy. We hoped he was the one who redeemed Israel. And now there's a rumor that he's alive and walking around, but come on, that's crazy. And because of the sadness on their faces, it would seem that these guys didn't believe that rumor, at least weren't sure what to do with it. Jesus, who they don't recognize in the moment, starts tying it all together for them. He gives them a real quick theology lesson right there on the road. It says he starts in Moses and goes through the prophets. It's a lot of scripture. So I don't know how he was hitting points, but he was the son of God. So he was tying it together. I don't know if he was drawn in the dirt quick, but he was tying it together. Look at this is how it all works out. But they don't know it's him yet. And so darkness is falling and they get to their house and they see it's dark. And there's something about this guy. They're like, there's something about him that they want him to come in. And so it says they say to him, stay with us. And he does. He comes into their house as it's getting dark. He sits down with them. He blesses their food. And suddenly they're like, this is Jesus. And he disappears. When I was, uh, self-disclosure for two seconds. When I was in um, seminary, I was going through, a, I don't know if you could call it a dark night of the soul or difficult time in my life where everything felt very hazy. And there's something very... Um, disconcerting about studying the scriptures and it being very dry or feeling as though it's lifeless. This passage was being read in a class uh, and I was in the class feeling like an academic and a burned out academic, feeling no life whatsoever from it. The professor was reading through it. I don't know if I was paying much attention and he was reading through the scriptures and I'm so, I got saved when I was nine or met Jesus as a kid. And, uh, but for me, it was just, I was feeling so disjointed from everything. And when the prof was reading through it like he did every time, he would read scripture forever. And you would just completely zone out because he would just be like, we're in the gospel of Luke tonight. And he'd go for three hours. Um, and so he's there at like hour three. And when we get to this point, it, it, this feels a bit youth campy. I, I, I get that. But um, there was just a moment for me where, where I felt that abiding presence of the Lord when he said, stay with us. And then Jesus stays with them, and he steps into their dwelling, and it says that their hearts burned within them. Because I felt like the psalmist, lonely and afflicted, and, and I knew that, um, I knew in my heart that God was real, but I didn't know where he was. And so that reality that Christ stays with us in our darkest moments, my heart felt a fire like these gentlemen said. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or he's the visible representation of God himself here on earth. He is God, visible for us. And it says that in verse 16 that everything holds together through him, that all the things we see, experience, and know are because of Christ. It means that the one who brought everything into existence, the, existence, the one whose breath made galaxies, who called out with his voice and things came together and oceans and all the glory of the world. It means that that was the guy at the table with these guys, him, the human 
fully human, fully God, Jesus stepping into our space to stay with us, to be with us as darkness falls. And I love that image. I love that reality. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, that we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus makes His place among us. And I think, I think that's the story of the gospel, right? That Jesus comes and steps into our existence. He takes on humanity for us. Athanasius, he was an early church father, so a very long time ago. He wrote the following, the Savior assumed a body for himself in order that the body, being interwoven as it were with life, should no longer remain a mortal thing. He put on the body, a body, sorry, so that in the body he might find death and blot it out. Love that last part. So it's a little wordy and weird because it was written in like 300 or something. But basically what he's saying is Jesus took on a body to find death, the very reality of death that we feel in our bodies. He took on in his body, still fully God, but in his humanness, he found death and blotted it out. So here's the reality. When darkness falls in our lives and we are in a as could be called the dark night of the soul or a tough season or things that are happening, when depression leaves you in bed and you don't reach a single goal that you set, when home is a hard place to be, if your body betrays you and you fall sick and your friends leave you, if a church hurts you, if the hands of addiction don't let go of you, the plea of the human heart is answered in Jesus stepping into your space and staying with you in your, when you're lonely and afflicted and all alone and in big trouble, when you don't feel like your feet are being plucked from the net, Jesus steps into that. And the part that can be hard is that even if you don't get a reprieve in this life, Jesus holds out the promise that he's right beside you and one day, as Revelations talks about, he's going to wipe every tear from your eye if you put your faith in Jesus, all things are going to be made new. See, Jesus never left William Cooper, and Jesus didn't leave our psalmist today. And Jesus doesn't leave me, and he doesn't leave you, even when it feels like you're looking through distorted glasses, and you're just waiting for the day when all things are made new. The steadfast character of God that we talked about that's talked about in the previous verses have been revealed in Jesus. Jesus said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the psalmist who is talking about the Father here, God, Yahweh, is describing the character of the triune God, steadfast in love, mercy, covenantal friendship, someone who comes when darkness falls and stays with you. So to be a Christian is to feel the abiding presence of Christ no matter what comes. To be a Christian is not to have the good life here, but to find that the good life is actually in a person, and that goodness is Jesus himself. Our buddy William Cooper, who died in the Depression, wrote the following words, and it's Old English, but he said, And ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings and in blessings and in blessings on your head. 
and on your head and on your head. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. For God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain in his own way, in his own time. In his own way and in his own time. So whatever your story is this morning, whatever you bring into church today, whatever you take into your week, whatever your story is that you have brought from years past, I pray that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you can once again turn your eyes as you wait for him and feel that abiding presence. As you invite Jesus in, know that he's there and sitting with you in the brokenness. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then the call of Christianity is not for a way to make life better, but is to find yourself in a place where you find a friend who never leaves you. That when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there's someone who is closer than a brother. And that when you call out for him to stay with you, he will step into your dwelling. Even when you feel all alone and in big trouble, he's going to pluck your feet from the net. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the reality of your abiding presence, even when we don't necessarily feel it, when our emotions might betray us, when things happen that seem to darken the sky. Different stories have different realities, and different people in this place this morning come with their own experiences and their own journeys with you. For those that are in a season where it's really dark and they are searching and looking and trying to understand what's going on, I pray for some reprieve that comes through knowing your abiding presence. For those in this room who may be in a deep communion with me, Lord, I praise you for that. And I pray that maybe they could find places to encourage others, to be your hands and feet to help show other people the abiding presence that you bring for those who are lonely and afflicted. God, we thank you for your character. We thank you that you are steadfast, you are merciful, that your promises are true and good, and that even when we can't necessarily see them, that we can cling to them. We love you, Lord, and we ask this all in your precious name. Amen.